Hi, everyone. My name is Blair Embry. I'm the communications manager for Prison Yoga Project, and we are thrilled to have our guest here today, Sarah Shire. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Blair. Sarah Shire is a global leader in compassion cultivation and the founder of Compassionate, a nonprofit organization promoting daily compassionate actions and attitudes. As a senior facilitator of the Compassion Cultivation Training, CCT course at Stanford University, Sarah has trained audiences worldwide from big tech leaders to incarcerated individuals for nearly a decade. Sarah also teaches mindfulness and compassion courses at San Diego State University and UCSD's Center for Mindfulness. She conducts research in mindfulness and compassion interventions at UCSD's Zyden Lab. A prolific author and speaker, Sarah writes for Deepak Chopra's Center for Wellbeing website and leads workshops on compassion, self-compassion, burnout prevention, and mindfulness. We're also really excited to share that she has a new book out titled A Case for Compassion, What Happens When We Prioritize People and the Planet. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. It's an honor. Thank you. Will you lead us in a centering opportunity so we can get started? Yes, I would love to. And to kick things off today, I would like for all of us to access the feeling of compassion. So the way we're going to do that is I'm going to guide you through a visualization exercise. And during this exercise, I'll be inviting you to think of a time that you experienced compassion. So a time when either you noticed someone struggling or suffering and you helped them, or a time when you yourself was suffering and someone helped you, or maybe you were witnessing compassion in front of your eyes. Okay, and we're gonna notice what that feels like. So that's the practice, Um, of course, It's up to you to choose what feels right for you in this moment. So you may not want to choose the hardest situation you've ever been in uh, because we don't have time to debrief. (laughs) Uh, But we're just trying to access that feeling of compassion. So I invite you to find a grounded posture to start. For me, that's placing both feet on the ground and finding an upright spine. And I invite you to either close the eyes or you can cast the gaze down and unfocus the eyes. And let's take a few deep cleansing breaths to start. So exhaling everything out. And taking a big inhale through the nose, filling your lungs all the way up. And then a slow exhale out of the mouth. And let's do that two more times. A big inhale through the nose. And an exhale out of the mouth. And again, inhaling. And exhaling. And now closing the lips and just breathing in and out of the nostrils. Relaxing the forehead, the eyes, the jaw. Softening the shoulders and abdomen. Relaxing the hands. 
And just allowing the mind to settle as you breathe in and breathe out. Letting go of whatever's on your agenda for the rest of the day. Leaving behind what already happened today and coming into this present moment. And now I invite you to think of a time that you experienced compassion. So maybe it was a moment when you noticed someone suffering and you helped them. Or maybe you were the one struggling and someone came to your aid. Or perhaps you were watching compassion unfold before your eyes. I invite you to put yourself back in that moment with as much detail as you can. Noticing where you were, who was there, what you see and hear. And now tuning into what you feel. Noticing what's happening in the body as you experience compassion. Asking yourself, what does compassion feel like and where do I feel it in my body? What does compassion feel like and where do I feel it? in my body. And taking a moment to anchor this feeling of compassion by perhaps placing a hand on the heart or giving yourself a hug. And taking a deep, compassionate breath in and breath out. And coming back to the present moment by noticing your feet on the ground. And when you're ready, opening the eyes. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. Blair, I I would like to ask you, what did you notice? What did compassion feel like and where did you feel it? I think it was interesting for me to transition into thinking to feeling. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say that, oh, I I feel it in my mind, but that wasn't true. (laughs) It was like a checklist. It was Mm -hmm. like, oh, do I feel it here? No, I don't feel it here. Um, But I think my heart center is where I feel compassion. And then I feel maybe it's like the action of compassion as well. I feel in my hands. I feel an awareness in my hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does it feel like? Can you put words to that? What was interesting for me is that 
a time where I could have been more compassionate is what came up. Mm. Hmm. And so I was holding myself in that. Mm. And I see that um, when our nervous system is activated, that it's that it can be more difficult to hold a compassionate space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how many years of work you've done, that it can still trigger or shock the system. Mm-hmm. And then I notice over time it can dissipate. But just to give yourself the spaciousness of when something happens and you're triggered. So that's what that's where I was at. Okay. So we maybe needed more time in that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk after this session. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Oftentimes, and hopefully uh, those who are listening and joining us today, hopefully what you, what you noticed was warmth. Compassion feels good. So you might feel that warmth in the heart or all over the body. And that feeling is why I do this work because we need more of it in our world. Thank you. What is your first memory of mindfulness? (sighs) When I think about mindfulness, I didn't start a practice until I um, began my teacher training at Stanford over 11 years ago or about 11 years ago. However, when I think back about who I am, I've, especially since I've moved to San Diego, which has been 20 years ago, I've always noticed sunsets or the sky or the feeling of the air and the sun. So I've, I can't really pinpoint when Mindfulness. I think mindfulness is a part of all of our lives from the very beginning. The practice began for me almost 11 years ago, but having it in my life, I know that that was something that I did before I knew what it was, really um, noticing the beauty of what's around me. Mm. The childlike awe and wonder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I was in school in North Carolina, I went to college there and I, I grew up in Illinois and I just remember being in North Carolina and the sky looked bluer and I might've been brainwashed because I went to UNC Chapel Hill and the Carolina blue is our school color. And they, you know, they sort of joke about that. God must've been a Tar Heel because the sky is Carolina blue. Uh, but I would notice like, I can't believe how blue the sky is. I've never seen anything like it. Um, and so that stands out to me. I don't know if other people were, were noticing that as much as I was, but I do think especially the sky is something that I've always been drawn to. Mm. What brought you to the mindfulness training? Compassion it. So the phrase, com- my organization, for those of you that are just listening, it's compassionate, but it's the two words, compassion it making compassion a verb, like Google it or just do it. Right. Um, and I was going through, it's a long story, but I was going through a really hard time in my own life back in 2008 
going through a, a divorce and my daughter was a baby. And I saw Wayne Dyer talking to Ellen about compassion and on the Ellen show. And he said, it's the most important lesson to teach our kids that if we could teach our children compassion, we would solve the problems of the world. And I had never really thought about how powerful compassion was until he said that. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that evening, the word compassionate appeared in my mind as compassion it. And I was like, well, that is kind of cool. It could be like a bumper sticker. So the, the phrase compassion it started my own practice of compassion. I started compassioning it and realizing this is such a helpful tool. And then I found out about Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And I was at the time I was thinking compassion, it would be like a brand like life is good and we would sell t-shirts and bumper stickers and stuff. And I wanted to learn as much about compassion as I could. And I thought this would be a really good business move to go through the training and get to know people in the world of compassion. That was my thinking. And then when I began the training, it was a year long training, I realized, oh, wait a second. I'm actually this. I'm supposed to be teaching forget this like selling stuff hat that I was wearing. Uh, this is my purpose. I'm a teacher. So that's, and then mindfulness is the um, foundation of compassion, according to the way that I teach it and the way I was taught at Stanford, because if you're not present, you can't notice suffering, the suffering around you and the suffering within you. So our compassion cultivation training courses that we teach the very first week is focused on mindfulness and it's woven throughout the whole course. It's an eight week course. Um, and you have to, I mean, as, as a teacher, you also have to be practicing daily. So that's how, that's how that began. And I think you're speaking to this aspect that you need to cultivate and feed compassion. It's not mm-hmm. something that you can necessarily just turn on you know speaking to so many people being disassociated and not being in their feeling body and maybe living life in their head yeah so there's a lot of navigation to even get to a place of compassion yeah and it starts with mindfulness right you have to be aware of what's going on in the body you have to you have to notice what Uh, what thoughts and what emotions you're having. So you're absolutely right. And what, but I also want to point out compassion is something we're all born with. So it's there, it's there and you just kind of need to, to dust it off and crack open the heart some to let it out. So we say cultivate, we, we need to water that seed. We need to just shine some sunlight on it. And there are practices and, and various things you can do. To, it's a muscle you can, we, we think of it as like a muscle you can train, right? Just like mindfulness, the brain, the brain can learn how to be more mindful and more compassionate. But what's cool is that's there. We all have the capacity. We just have to, to do the work. And so through this year long mindfulness, compassion, cultivation, training, 
there are three pillars of self-compassion. Will you dive a little deeper into the framework of compassion? Yeah. So this is, okay, we'll back up. The three pillars of self-compassion come from Kristen Neff, who is the main researcher researcher of self-compassion. She's out of the University of Texas at Austin. We spend two weeks of our eight-week course, Compassion Cultivation Training, two weeks are focusing on self-compassion. So we integrate a lot of her work in those two weeks. Okay, so this is her framework. Is the th- She defines self-compassion as having three main pillars, three main parts. And the first one is mindfulness of your own suffering, which makes sense, right? You can't alleviate your own suffering if you aren't aware that it's there. Uh, but what this, what's important is understanding that mindfulness also means non-judgment and curiosity and kindness. So you're not saying, oh, I can't believe I'm stressed right now. I'm so, so mad at myself for feeling this stress, right? You, you pause and you say, oh, huh. my stomach's in a knot. My heart is racing. Hmm. Right. I'm kind and curious about that. So mindfulness of your own suffering. The second pillar is common humanity, which is the recognition that you're not alone. And that matters, especially in today's world, where if if you're on any kind of social media, you think everybody's living this awesome life and it feels isolating when you're when you're suffering and struggling. But when you remember, oh, wait a minute, everybody's worried about something. Everybody's suffering in some way. They're not showing me that on social media. They're not even showing this to me when I'm meeting with them. If I see them at the office, right, at work. But I know deep down, every single human being is worried about something. And that makes me feel better to know I'm not alone in that. So pillar number one is mindfulness of your suffering. Number two is common humanity. And the third pillar is this crazy idea that you would treat yourself the way you treat people you care about. So self-kindness is the third pillar. Treating yourself with respect, warmth, as a coach, instead of being highly critical of every little mistake that you make. Uh, And I'll never forget when I learned this particular concept, one of the teachers said, think about the way you speak to yourself. If you spoke to any of your friends, the way you speak to yourself, would you have any? And that was a huge light bulb moment for me because right away I was like, no, I would never say the things to my friends that I say to myself. And I thought, well, isn't that crazy? Like, how, how am I treating myself this way? And so that began my practice of learning how to be kind to myself. And that has been life-changing, completely life-changing. So those are the three pillars of self-compassion. And then I have added a fourth pillar, and I haven't gotten uh, Kristen Neff's permission for this, but I think it's important to, to share this because reaching out to community is the fourth pillar or reaching out for support is the pillar I've added because I don't want people to think self-compassion is a solo project and it's on me to take care of my own suffering. You need to ask for help and that's okay. We are social beings 
people want to help you. And if you pay attention, your body is oftentimes is telling you to ask for support and help. So those are the pillars of self-compassion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I can hear uh, the four noble truths, um, a Buddhist idea rooted in some of these three pillars as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these three pillars, was this part of your teaching um, for the Stanford training? Yeah. So that it's, it's woven into the work that we do into the, the two weeks of self-compassion that we spend and during the eight week course, the two weeks that are focused on self-compassion incorporates a lot of this is Kristen Neff work because she's really done. She's done a lot in this field. I dropped her information in the chat and we'll make sure we put a, a link in the podcast awesome. as well to her work too. Great. What are some other aspects of the training that you experienced? Oh gosh. I think what, what stands out a lot. Um, I mean, that was a, the year long program I went through was to learn how to teach the eight week course. Um, but when I think about the eight week course and what really stands out to a lot of the participants and myself is the, is this concept of common humanity and, um, just realizing that connection you can form with another, no matter who they are, just by being a little bit vulnerable and each sharing something that's causing some stress for you. And recognizing, wow, I, d- I lead an exercise, whether it's during the eight-week course or even if I have like 20 minutes with a group, I make sure I lead this exercise because it's so powerful. And you p- I p- pair people up and one person shares with the other. I give them two or three minutes per person. And you just share something that's creating worry or stress for you. Whatever you feel comfortable sharing, right? And you can, if you don't want to talk about the content, you can just talk about what you feel like, what the stress feels like. And the listener, the job of the listener is to keep your mouth shut and just listen, which that in and of itself is an eye-opening practice for folks because oftentimes we don't realize what kind of listener we are until we're forced to not say anything. And most people are like, oh my gosh, I usually interrupt or I wanted to tell them about my experience with that or I'm trying to fix it, right? There's just all this stuff we we think we need to do as a listener. But this job, the job of this listener is, is just to listen with your full presence, right? And they know you're listening because of your body language and your eyes and your head nodding. So each person shares something that's creating stress to a a very receptive present listener. And then I have them close their eyes and just consider that this other person, your partner, has had a lot of ups and downs in their life and they want to be loved and appreciated and accepted. And think about, was there something that your partner shared that you felt like you could connect to? And the whole room, as I'm guiding this, you see everybody nodding their heads. And then you say, so there's this connection that's formed in those four minutes, very deep connection. And then I say, and now think about, you could have been partnered with anyone in the room and felt that same connection. And people 
nod their heads. And then I say, we could have pulled strangers off the street. And you could have been partnered with anyone in the world and felt the same way. Um, and that, that practice alone, I think, can change the way you view the world. Because you see each human as a human like you. And when you recognize, gosh, this person is just like me. They sure look a lot different than I do. And boy, do they live their life a whole different way than I do. Man, their beliefs are different than mine. But when it comes down to it, we're both human beings who suffer. And we're worried about something. And when you have that, that deep of a connection with someone, that's, you can just relate on a totally different level. So that, I think that's one, of, that's one of my very favorite aspects of the course that I teach and, and when I lead workshops too. I love this. Being witnessed is an integral part of healing. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's compassion. We didn't even talk about what compassion is, which is the recognition of suffering and having the willingness to take action to alleviate it. And you have to learn how to be present with suffering in order to be compassionate. You have to be able to witness it, which means you're not like, I'm not pretending that it's not there. I'm not getting overwhelmed. I'm not just in empathy, right? Empathy is a piece of compassion because I can feel, maybe I can feel how you're feeling or I can relate to your feeling. But if I stay there, boy, that doesn't, that's not compassion. And that, that's going to lead to burnout or empathy fatigue. But when I get to compassion and I can be present and know that just by being fully present, I'm alleviating some of your suffering, that's what brings all these feel-good hormones and that warmth. That, that warmth is a real thing. I mean, the body rewards you when you're compassionate. It gives you all those warm fuzzies. If that's not what you're getting, it's not quite compassion. Maybe you're stuck in empathy. Maybe you're not. The, the tricky part about compassion is self-compassion has to be uh, alongside it. So you have to attune to, well, what's my, is my body getting overwhelmed? Is my nervous system out of whack? Because if it is, I can't be present with this human who's suffering. So what do I need to do right now? Maybe take a breath, maybe place my hands on my heart and take a beat for me so that I can be present with this human who's suffering. But you have to have both, right? It's like two wheels of a bicycle. You got to have self-compassion going at the same time as your compassion for another. So compassion does require some skill and some practice, right? Because, I mean, Blair, we kicked this off and you talked about your nervous, nervous system not quite being where it needed to be in order to be compassionate, right? Maybe you weren't feeling that warm glow of compassion. You were noticing, though, what was going on within you. And if we had had more time, maybe you could have taken a moment for self-compassion first and then tuned into that feeling of compassion. I think there's also a piece of the witnessing that comes back to the not judgment is where seeing someone in their wholeness, not seeing someone as 
like missing a piece of themselves or Mm -hmm. seeing them as their trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or the judgment that, that folks have where they think, well, you deserve this. Oh, you put yourself in this situation. Right. And for those of those of us who have done work with incarcerated individuals, that that's something we have to leave, you know, check that at the door. We can't think, ah, you deserve this. Ah, you're suffering well. And and unfortunately, our brains judge people automatically without us knowing, right? So that's unconscious bias. And our brains might be doing that, might be shutting people out, thinking, well, that person doesn't deserve my compassion because they are a horrible human. And the brain might is doing that without you even knowing that it's doing it. So that's why, again, this mindfulness piece is so important because each of us needs to be aware of what are my biases so that I can work on that and connect to every single human in the same way. I need to see every single human as someone deserving of compassion. doesn't matter what they've done. I don't want them to keep hurting others or themselves. I'm not saying their behavior is okay, but I'm saying that that human being is deserving of my compassion. And I think this translates to the call and the desperate need for new systems mm-hmm. that reflect compassion. So in you in your book, you talk about compassionate systems. Mm-hmm. And You've been doing this work for over a decade, Um, you know, big tech companies to incarcerated individuals. So you've worked with so many realms of the human experience. Mm -hmm. What have you seen from facilitating for so many people and what is the call to action? And again, I'm going to speak to the audience here because I know a lot of a lot of you all are facilitators. And if you're in my shoes, it's this work is is beautiful and life giving and I wouldn't want to do anything else. Uh, And when I look at the past decade, I think. Have I really made a difference? And I have. I know that in some individuals, there some some shifts have happened and I feel good about that. But I also know that we are products of our systems. And that's why in the book, I decided, you know what, let's zoom out and think about think about this from a much larger lens. Because I can only do so much. Each of us facilitators, we can go in and, and do what we can. But wouldn't it be a lot better if our incarcerated individuals were a part of a facility that treated them with care, that wanted to heal them, instead of us trying to teach them skills to learn how to heal themselves or learn how to be present with this horrible situation, this um, horrible yeah, facility that they're in? What if the facility allowed them to sleep well and gave them healthy, nourishing foods and offered them mental health support instead of 
relying on volunteers to go in and teach, you know, once a week or whatever. And, and then I know I would teach, I taught my eight week course and, you know, it feels all beautiful and warm and fuzzy in this classroom. And then we, and then we're in the yard and that's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. So, um, and that's just one of the systems. I looked at corrections, law enforcement, education, the workplace, and healthcare. And those were the five systems that I examine in the book. And it's not a hard case to prove, to say, hey, look at where we are right now. It's not work. None of these are really, we're not doing so well, guys. Um, and hey, check out these examples of places where they're actually, compassion seems to be like a main pillar of of the institution or the system and look at those results so i'm trying to get people thinking about about systems more because that's how we're going to make the real change and all of us can continue doing our work with individuals and my hope is we're maybe we're doing this work with individuals who are leaders who can make some of these big changes in systems right um, but, you know, we need it from the top, we need it from the bottom, we need, we need the whole spectrum of folks learning about compassion and mindfulness and self-compassion, but we also need systems that promote it and allow for it. We are all complicit in these systems, whether we like to call in that awareness or not we vote for people in power that make decisions we have power to shift narrative to create new vision for our systems and so when we don't engage in this work it's neglect mm -hmm. so we're neglecting systems and Recidivism rates, for me, show that this is a failed system. It's a, it's, a, it's a failed and failing system, or it does exactly what it's supposed to do. Right. It was designed to, it's working just as it was designed. Mm hmm Mm-hmm. Just really sitting with how many millions of people are incarcerated in this country. The highest rate of any country in the world, by far. And some of the work that Prison Yoga Project does is to help shift the view of incarcerated individuals, seeing that it's a high trauma population, high ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, developmental trauma. This shifts our behavior. It brings anyone into fight or flight mode. And the more I get into this work, I also am reminded that any of us be could become incarcerated. 
Yeah. And it's not just a system. It's a system that affects everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's also a system that harms everyone that it touches. Mm-hmm. Correctional officers, obviously the people incarcerated, mm-hmm. the children of people incarcerated and the children of correctional officers. So when you were digging in deep into these five systems that all clearly need a shift, what did you find? Um, what did I find? I think I found a lot. <laughs> found a lot. <sighs> Unfortunately, what seemed to be the conclusion of, of almost every chapter was that greed is at the heart of a lot of this. So the, a lot of these for-profit systems and um, lobbying groups that are trying to make sure that they, you know, that are lining the pockets of politicians to make sure that legislation supports having a lot of correctional facilities and a lot of jobs that are created by that. There's not an incentive to lower the number of incarcerated individuals. There's not a financial incentive, right? Uh, It's job security. If you're looking at the workplace, I mean, of course, our workplaces are all about making money. Um, um, Not all of them, most of them. And you can see how CEO CEO to average employee ratios in the United States are like 299 to one. And there's a company in the Basque region of Spain that's a co-op, it's a huge company. They employ tens of thousands of people and there's a rule. They say you can't have more than, I think it's six to one, I believe, or four to one is the ratio that they say. So if you're if you're an average employee there, you'll make fifty thousand dollars. The lowest paid employees at, at this company can still have three weeks of vacation. They still have enough money to have children and send them to college and go away for vacation and have homes and cars. The lowest paid employees. And guess what? The CEOs, they're not making millions, millions and millions and millions. They're making, you know, if you're if your average worker is at 50,000, they're making 300. Well, that's enough. And so this idea of enoughness is a part of the culture and a part of that that region. And that's, you know, that's what I'm finding here is we just don't have that. We don't have that culture of I want to care for my community. I have enough. I'm making enough. So how can I make sure that other employees within my organization have enough too? It's, and it's not hard. Like it's, I'm like, this is not hard. This is not hard. Our, our income inequality is such a huge part of what's causing problems in our, in our nation. <sighs> so that can, that, um, that can be discouraging because we live in this capitalist society and I don't, I don't know what we can do about changing that or shifting it. But that's, 
That doesn't, none of this sounds like good, hopeful news. My hope is that the book is hopeful and that people can say, look, it's, this is being done in other places and it can be done. To spark vision. Yeah. Yeah. I also come to the same pinpoint that it is hard to shift any system in capitalism. However, let me let me yeah. share something that does provide hope. Someone that I interviewed for the book was as a fellow compassion teacher who just was elected as the sheriff of Santa Clara County. Uh, and he was a chief of police at Palo Alto and just this amazing guy, Bob Johnson is his name. And when I interviewed him, I asked him about correctional facilities. I I talked to him a lot for the law enforcement chapter, which I hope everyone will read. It's really neat. He's an amazing guy and just has done a lot to bring mindfulness and compassion to the officers that worked for him. Um, but he was going through, like it was election time kind of when I was interviewing him. And he said, gosh, if I get elected sheriff, we have money to build some new jails. And I want them to be a place, places that promote healing. I want people to be able to sleep well when they're within those walls. I want them to get what they need mental health wise, but physically too. They should have foods that are healthy and nourishing. Um, and so you have someone like that who is in power and can make changes. He sees this as an opportunity to help people, right? If folks are going to a county jail, they have it's a brief amount of time and they, there can be some interventions that offer them support and guidance and help. And he sees that as a, a, an opportunity. And we just need more, more folks like him and leadership who say, hey, we care about healing. That's what we're trying to do at the, at the sheriff's department here. We want to heal, heal people. It's possible. I think it's also empowering people in their own community to serve community. Mm-hmm. How can we do preventative work in communities before people could become incarcerated? How can we be a leader in our own communities? I think sometimes at least for me, sometimes I get caught up in big systems that feel far away. Mm -hmm. And what can I do that has a direct impact to the people around me? So it's like, it's, it's both. How can we, the macrocosm Mm -hmm. and the microcosm. And knowing what you Blair can do. Right. So if you were um, a city council member, you would have some different, uh, your capabilities for changing systems would be different than they are as, as they are for you now. Right. So sorry, that didn't come out very articulately. Um, you know what I'm saying? So I think yeah. every each one of us needs to just know what is my world and how can I support? Maybe I'm just supporting the people in my life. And that's okay too, right? We, we each have our own capacities and our own worlds. Um, 
And I do think it can be overwhelming if we think, oh, it's on me to change these systems. Yeah, I see this. Oh, sorry. I saw this question in the chat. I don't know if we want to get to that or. We've got a few more minutes still. Oh, that's right. We're doing that for the Q&A. Yeah, and we'll shift. No problem. Um, Because I think there's there's still a couple more things to be said about the system as well. We have a punitive justice system. And the call is for a restorative or a transformative justice system. And it doesn't take responsibility away from people who have caused harm, but it's also the responsibility of the community to support everyone in in healing. And so we have back to the beginning of this conversation about compassion, right? We have this view that you deserve to be here. And I don't think that's the view of everyone. Obviously, you know, we have an entire organization where we go inside and we and we support incarcerated individuals with compassion and relationship and embodied mindfulness and yoga. But that is the view of a lot of people. Oh, you break the law, you go to jail. You break the law, you go to prison. You hurt someone, you go to prison. And shifting that narrative mm-hmm. will also help shift and change systems. Mm-hmm. I was researching the state of Michigan in 2017. The Board of Education approved restorative justice programming for schools. Mm-hmm. So instead of um, detention or suspension, your entire school can shift to a restorative justice model. So that's one way someone could also get involved is Mm -hmm. at a school level. How does your school deal with behavioral issues? And as we know, the school to prison pipeline, this is another way that as an individual, you can get involved in shifting systems. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll get off my... My soapbox now, but no, that's great. It's so true. I and I address some of this in the education chapter of the book, um, because I interviewed a teacher who worked at a, a charter school that had a lot of uh, was serving a lot of underserved kids, and it was a punitive school and it very strict. And as a teacher, she said she had to unpack a lot of this from therapy. Uh, but you know, if the if the child the child would have to stay late after school if they didn't have their homework done. And like there would be days where they wouldn't see the sunlight because they, they were noisy in the hallway. So everybody had to stay in their inside. I mean, it was just this horror. It sounds horrible. And she says, you know, I wish I had asked, or, you know, we all should have asked as educators if, if somebody isn't performing well in school that day or acting up, why aren't we asking, did you get enough food? today, this morning? Did you get sleep? What's going on at home right now? And that we should be leading with compassion and curiosity when a child acts unskillfully instead of making them think they're a bad kid or bad at school. Right? What would that do if all of our educators were just curious and wanted to help 
and assumed, okay, that's an unskillful behavior. Something's going on. Instead of punishment, to your point. So, I mean, there's a lot we can do as a nation to make sure our children have food. It's hard to learn when you haven't, when you have an empty stomach or it's not safe to, to walk to school. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I dropped the link to Sarah's book. Once again, a case for compassion. What happens when we prioritize people and the planet? We're going to transition into some question and answer here. So if you're in the Zoom room right now, and this is one of the benefits to joining us online, is that you get to ask our guests questions directly. So that's the invitation now. If you have any questions, drop that into the Q&A box for Sarah. And... This is quite a long one in the chat. Mm. So a question, I think it's generally about the work that we offer. Does training of staff allow, so facilitators or correctional officers, does it allow frontline staff in jails and prisons to have the time to do their inner work that is necessary? I know that training can tr create triggers for people who have not been exposed to the healing modalities. Um, and where does this leave us on a systemic level? Um, great question. When you were looking at our systems in of incarceration um, and maybe offering these trainings to people that are the custodians, they are the, they are the caregivers of our incarcerated populations. Yeah. What did you, what did you find? Well, I haven't had experience working with them. I've only worked with incarcerated individuals, not with anybody working at the facilities. So I don't know that I can speak to that. Um, I did have a conversation with a police officer this week, and I, I think it sort of ties into that because it's also tricky to kind of convince, and I'm using air quotes here, folks to do this work, right? We, we don't want people to be forced to take a mindfulness or compassion training. That's not going to work. It should be voluntary. But what we can do is create procedures and protocols within the organization, within the system that creates care and healing for the people who work there. Even if it's a, like I was talking to this uh, police leader and I said, after each call, you know, and, and if, if, if you have to respond, if you're a first responder and you go out and somebody pulls a knife on you and, you know, that situation gets handled and then you go back to your car, well, then you get another call, right? And it, oftentimes he was saying they carry each call with them to the next, right? There's not time to, they don't have anything baked into their procedures that he can help care and heal for them. So I said, well, what if after each call, what we do here at this police department is that you talk to the sergeant or whoever, your partner, and share what that felt like, what you're thinking, what's going on in the body. And the person asks you, how can I, is there anything I can do to support you? Do you need anything? And then they move on to the next call. 
right? Like things like that, or even check-ins if there are staff meetings, whether it's a workplace or your correctional officer, whatever it is, I'm assuming they would all convene in one place. Is there a, hey, let's check in. How's everybody feeling today before we move into our agenda? Are we connecting as human beings and taking care of each other in that way? I think that that is kind of a sneaky way to bring some of this in. And I think it's going to work better than trying to require mindfulness and compassion and self-compassion. And this person is absolutely right. These, this type of work takes time and most of us have experienced trauma and need, need the, the time to, um, to work through that. So again, we, we need workplaces and institutions that provide resources for folks, right? Correctional officers should be going to therapy. We all should, frankly, but you know, they, they should have that support from, um, from the institution. Maybe even a year of therapy before they start. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's other specific training and mental health support, physical health support. Um, so we are prison yoga projects is developing a correctional officer training because we, we do see how important it is that they have skills and tools and it does directly impact incarcerated individuals in our programs. But when you look at correctional officer numbers, they are, they are giving their life to this job. I think their life expectancy is 20 years less Divorce rates are like 40%, heart attacks. Um, And I think that's, sometimes that's also what's hard about the work that we do. Again, compassion, compassion for all individuals. Um, A lot of correctional officers come from not only similar neighborhoods, but similar social economic backgrounds as the people incarcerated becoming a cop or becoming a correctional officer is one way for someone to increase their income that they wouldn't have another opportunity to do otherwise. Yeah. Question from our community. What is the best thing we can continue to do each day for ourselves and those we help? Oh, you're muted. There you go. The best thing. Oh, my. I think taking the time to care for yourself and acknowledge your own struggles and and show up for you will allow you to show up for those that you care about and those in your community. So having a practice of self-compassion, whether even if it's just, I drink my coffee mindfully before opening my email in the morning and listen to the birds while I do it, just having pausing and and having time for you to reflect uh, 
I think that that's so vital in this world where we hurry from thing to thing to thing, school, kid drop off at school, to work, to volunteering, whatever it is, um, taking that time to take care of yourself, I think is, is vital. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Another question and statement from our community. I am noticing really compassionate, thoughtful language in this webinar. Thank you. Any suggestions for increasing my own awareness to language that may be harmful, reinforcing of negative stereotypes or beliefs of vulnerable vulnerable groups of people? What's your thoughts, Sarah? I appreciate this question a lot, and I appreciate people beginning to pay attention to language more lately. And I don't know, I've, I learned from my friend, Kate Beckel, who was part of Prison Yoga Project in San Diego, because I was saying inmates, and she said, nope, we don't do that anymore. She said it in a very kind way. And I needed somebody to tell me that. Oh, incarcerated individuals. Oh, yeah, of course, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I think it's good to have people who know who can who can support you. I've also seen online just some some posts about language that we can be more aware of. So I don't know, maybe it's something you could Google. I don't have a resource off the top of my head. Blair, maybe you do. Um, yeah. I have okay. a few. Yeah, I have a few. Um, I would also, if you have not taken it, I suggest our foundational training. We dive deeper into this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to drop a link here. So our foundational training, um, yoga, incarceration, trauma, we dive deeper into these aspects, um, which help shift the view of incarcerated and justice involved individuals. So that's that's one thing. But what we talk about often in this shift of, of language is person first language. And I think this might have originally been born from disability rights activism. And so you speak to the person first, not the disability or um, accessibility. And so that would be another place where you can read a little bit more. Um, And then also looking for unconscious bias training, like what we were speaking to earlier. Um, And the first person that comes to me is Resma Menikin, the author of My Grandmother's Hands. Um, And then this is also something that uh, affects our work in incarceration and, and system and systems. Um, so those would be a couple of the places that I recommend. And yes, also being being in dialogue with our community um, and calling people in, right? It's the idea of calling people in, not necessarily calling people out. Hey, you're doing that wrong. Hey, when you do this, it might make other people feel this way. Or again, the root of our work is humanizing. How can we bring dignity and respect to all of the populations and all of the different experiences on this planet? And so those that's just a couple of things that I would share. I even appreciate that lately I've seen folks 
um, point out the violent, violent language that is used in our society without us even knowing. And this is something my teammate, Burrell Poe, who's in Chicago, he, he started saying this, I think years ago, and I, I love it. Instead of killing two birds with one stone, he says petting two puppies with one hand. And so that's, <laughs> I'd like to get that out in the, in the world as a saying, uh, but just, you know, paying attention is something, the silver, silver bullet. Um, I, if you start noticing it's, it's, it's uh, shocking the amount of violent language that we use every day. And it's kind of cool to f- try to figure out what's a different way that I can say this that isn't so violent. Shoot from the hip. Totally. Yep. It's these, um, I'll take a stab at it. And when you start to hear it, it is everywhere. And even um, the rule of thumb. What I kind of remember from doing a little research of this is that, and please excuse me if this is not historically correct, but what I remember was that there were laws that you could beat your wife with something thinner than your thumb. Right. So it's like these things. Yeah. So these things that have stayed in our language that again, we are unaware of Mm -hmm. unaware of their origins. So again, curiosity, why do we say that? Where did that come from? So that's just another invitation. Bullet points. Yep. Bullet uh-huh. points. Somebody um, said they heard f- feeding two birds with one scone. That's also very cute. I like the rhyming of that. Master bedroom. See, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Love that the chat is alive with <laughs> calling in. <laughs> our our language Uh, and i also like somebody wrote here we use returning citizens or those previously incarcerated for those who were previously incarcerated and now returning back into their communities yep Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's great and what we also have been leaning on is asking what these communities prefer to be called or the language that they feel comfortable with because it is their lived experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so leaning on previously incarcerated individuals to continue to lead these movements and to uplift their lived experience. Yeah, that's great. That's what I would share too. Yeah. So compassion. (laughs) I know that we could continue to talk about this word, about this work, about having compassion be alive in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you would love to speak to about compassion? Mm. I want, I want to make sure people don't think it's hard because it can sound like it is. I, I have a story in my book about this. I was 
just talking to my sister about, I think a talk I was going to give and all these things you need to know about compassion. And, you know, it doesn't mean fixing and you got to be present and whatever. And she goes, oh, that just seems too hard. Can't you just try to encourage people not to be assholes? And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Hey, oh no, I don't want it to sound hard. Uh, and B, if you want to start a movement called Don't Be an Asshole, that's on you because mine's called Compassionate. Um, but I, I do want to make sure that as we communicate about it, it doesn't seem like this tough thing that you have to really think on and because uh, it's there. We all have it. We've all felt it. We've all experienced it. And I think a lot of what needs to happen is it just needs to be dusted off. Um, so, and the, what the cool thing about compassion is it will change your life. If you make compassion a priority for yourself and for others, and if you view, if you try to view everything through a compassionate lens, the world is brighter. And so you may not be able to well, we know we can't, we can't change what other people do, right? I'm not in control of anyone but myself. That's something I have told my daughter her whole life to make sure she knows that, right? Um, but boy, when I see others through a compassionate lens, my life is better. So it's, it's worth it. It's worth the effort. Not that it's a lot of effort, but it's, it is worth pursuing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. These have been great questions too. Yeah. Thank you so much to our community for our lively chat and conversation. There's, I always love hosting this time together because it, it is an opportunity for our community to come these are always free. We want to be able to have access to leaders in this work, in this world. And thank you so much for being a leader, for diving into your own work for so many years and listening to the call to support others. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And you had mentioned that you wanted to lead us in uh another centering opportunity before we go, which is something new. And I really like the <laughs> idea of leaving on a specific note. Yeah, I would be happy to guide you all through just a very brief self-compassion practice so that you can get into move into the rest of your day coming from a place of self-compassion. And this is inspired by Kristen Neff and a, a practice that she does called the self-compassion break. And we're what we're doing is we're going to pause and just acknowledge our what thoughts we're having and emotions and then tune into the body. And we're going to give ourselves some soothing touch. You can promote your own uh, oxytocin by skin to skin contact, which can be your hand on your heart or giving yourself a hug or placing your face in your hands. You know, you can sort of experiment, but we're going to do some little bit of self-soothing. Um, and then we're going to say a phrase of kindness to ourselves. So what's a phrase that you need to hear right now? So that's what the practice will be. It will be brief. Um, so let's once more find a grounded posture. 
And close the eyes if you'd like, or casting the gaze down. And again, taking a few deep breaths on your own just to settle the body and the mind. closing the lips and just breathing in and out of the nostrils. Relaxing the forehead and eyes, softening the jaw, relaxing the shoulders and the belly. Softening the hands and feet. And just taking a moment to tune in. See if you can observe with curiosity the thoughts that are coming up for you. And just noticing them, not judging. And now labeling whatever emotion you're feeling right now. emotions, maybe there's more than one. And now tuning into the body. What's your body trying to tell you in this moment? Maybe you notice tension somewhere. Maybe your stomach's growling. Maybe you feel relaxed. Just noticing the body. And taking a moment to offer yourself self-compassion by placing a hand on the heart, or maybe both hands on the heart. And taking a breath in and out tuning into that warmth that you're giving yourself. And now let's try giving yourself a hug. Maybe squeezing the arms or moving the hands up and down on the arms. It might even feel nice to rock from side to side as you hug yourself. And now try holding your own hand. Maybe even massaging one of your hands with the other, pressing into the webbing of the fingers. But just soothing yourself. And taking whatever position feels best for you. It could be hands on the heart or giving yourself a hug or holding your hand or maybe hands on the face. 
And as you offer yourself this comforting touch, I invite you to think of a phrase of kindness that you would like to hear right now. And repeat it over and over in your mind. It could be something like, you've got this. Your darling may find peace. And just offering yourself soothing touch and saying the phrase. And allow yourself to bask in this feeling of self-compassion. Taking a few compassionate breaths. Allowing that feeling of compassion to weave its way into every cell of the body. From the head down to the toe. And returning your hands back to your lap. And just noticing how you feel. Taking a moment to appreciate. Appreciate yourself for showing up today. Appreciate this community. And you can take a deep breath in and breath out. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and come back. Thank you. Thank you. A case for compassion. What happens when we prioritize people and the planet? Sarah Shire, where can we find your work? Where can we train with you? Where can we buy your book? Tell us all of the details. <laughs> I think a good place to start is the Compassionate website. So CompassionIt.com and don't forget, it's the two words, compassion, it, not compassionate. Um, so you can learn more about the work that we do, and you can find the book there. Um, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn if you are brave enough to try to spell my last name on there. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Will you spell your name? So oh, our- sure. <laughs> yeah, that might be helpful. We'll, we'll, we'll link it in the podcast, but why not spell it too? Yes, it's S C H. A-I-R-E-R, S-Chair-E-R is my last name, Shire, and my first name is Sarah, S-A-R-A. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) It was an absolute gift to be able to spend the morning with you. And I love this last piece of reminding people that it doesn't have to be hard. Mm -hmm. That compassion is something that is innate. It is something that lives within us. And I love your idea of just uncovering it Mm -hmm. and that's the work that we get to do that's right yeah so thank you so much for joining us we host these webinars about twice a month they are always free please come the purpose of these is to be together to join in this work and to further educate ourselves um We've been so happy to host you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this community for showing up and engaging with questions. We really love you here. And it's the whole point of doing this is is to be together. 
we have uh, an offering for the podcast now, and we offer 10% off of our foundational training. So this is foundational training is something that I had mentioned earlier in the podcast as well. It's an opportunity for us to shift our lens of incarceration, diving deeper into trauma, understanding substance abuse disorder, understanding mental health issues, understanding biases that also happen within our system. So this is an opportunity for you to dive further into training, and we would love to see you there. PYP Podcast gets you 10% off in the checkout. Sarah, how can people, do you offer trainings still for the public? Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, I do a lot of my teaching through UCSD's Center for Mindfulness or the, my CCT classes. But my teammate Burrell and I also offer trainings through Compassion It. So you can reach out to us at Compassion It. Or if you want to bring us into your organization or institution, we also would love to work with larger groups and try to do some work within those systems. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So everyone listening, call Sarah. <laughs> Please. It's like Ghostbusters, but it's like, I can see like coming in with like a heart on your shirt and you're like, Oh, I love it. it. Yeah. I love, I love it. it. Oh, so thank you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our community and we'll see you next time. Thanks everybody. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Thank you. All right. You're welcome.